I have been uh, praying about this message. I need I need your prayers about this message today. I'm I'm trying to walk a pretty fine line. It's good to walk fine lines. It's good to get into the tension of our faith and our faith in practice, but it's difficult as well. Uh, so I'm I'm really praying that the Holy Spirit can make what I'm speaking personal to you, uh, and that the the truth and the spirit of what I'm saying is communicated. It's good to come on the back of talking about um, restoration groups because some of the stuff I'll talk about today is talking about the messiness of reality, of life, of our lives, and the fact that our lives aren't always what we want them to be uh, and that we need to be restored and redeemed from things that have happened to us and things that we've done. So... It is going to get a bit personal today, more personal than it has been in the last couple of weeks because I'm talking about engaging with these issues and one of the big primary things that I'm going to talk about is, as I said last week, that we're not individuals. There's no such thing as this individualism thing and that everything we do has impacts in society. And that's difficult because that means that our actions really matter and sometimes the weight of our actions or actions that have happened to us can be really difficult to grapple with, which is why we need Jesus and why I need Jesus today in talking about this stuff. So it's not my intention to offend anybody. Uh, anybody that knows me hopefully knows I don't ever want to offend people, but I do end up offending people, so I'm really sorry about that. But maybe the reason is because I don't believe in sacred cows. I don't believe that there are things that should not be spoken about. I don't think that God thinks that there are things that are untouchable by him. Uh, We live in society that wants to say a lot of the time, mind your own business, and we've brought that into our churches as well, and we say, mind your own business as well. But the fact is we're a community, and we're designed to be a community, and so everything that we do impacts other people. And so in one very, I think, real way, there is no such thing as your own business and my own business. We all impact each other all the time by the decisions that we make. And we make bad decisions, and bad decisions are made against us as well, which is why we need Jesus, and we need his redemptive uh, redemptive story. So I don't think that there are things that are untouchable for discussion, and my intention today is to bring stuff up for discussion. More than ever before, today I'm speaking as me, as Diff, I'm not speaking as the project, I'm not an elder, Uh, and so if you have questions, uh, Gilly will come up at the end, and can field questions kind of on behalf of the project. So I'm going to try to go really fast so that we can get there to the question time, because I do think that it's important. So I hope that that makes sense and that, um, that you're on board with being able to think about things that might be difficult to think about today. All right, this is an Ouroboros. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of an Ouroboros before. You've probably seen the picture if you haven't heard the word. Uh, it's a snake eating itself. And I know this one doesn't look like a snake, right? It looks kind of like a weird little fox. Um, it's got tiny little legs. This is, a, this is a drawing from the 15th century. And if you've seen 15th century drawings, they're all kind of like this. They're just kind of weird. Um, they didn't really know how to draw people properly yet um, or things properly yet. And this is probably meant to be a dragon, which often the Ouroboros is, is a dragon as well. And dragons back then had scales a lot of the time, but they, they had like a cat head or a weird dog head and strange little legs. So... That's explaining why it doesn't look like a snake eating its tail, but that's what it is. It's a snake eating its tail. The Ouroboros is an ancient uh, symbol 
that goes right back to ancient Egypt and it's been used um, and actually popped up all over the world from cultures that were disconnected from each other and being used in kind of pagan uh, religions and, uh, and cults and stuff like that to mean a bunch of different things. I want to use it today because I think it literally demonstrates exactly what we've been talking about over the last two weeks and today, uh, the culture of death. I don't think any other image could represent the culture of death so well. This is literally something consuming itself. This is something by its very nature eating itself, devouring itself. We're going to cover a couple points today, and each one of them is a kind of Ouroboros. It, by its very nature, consumes itself. So we'll start with politics. Uh, The best place to begin is with politics, because ultimately all the things that we've spoken about so far happen at a political level. Okay, the... um, the abortion bill that went through went through the Queensland Parliament, right? The euthanasia bill in Victoria went through the Parliament. So it's all well and good for us to have uh, thoughts, to have opinions, to have good arguments, but they don't really mean that much if they don't get through into politics, um, which means that politicians need to uh, listen. But before they need to listen, they actually need to have a chance to hear. And that means that, um, like it or not, I think that we should be engaged with politics. There should be some degree of political engagement that we should have, which is really important. I do think that the church has a right, as a group of individual members of society, to have a say in political decision-making. This person doesn't think that. Love that sign. Keep your rosaries off my ovaries. It's great. There are people out there that would advocate that the church should stay completely out of politics. These idea... Uh, these, these people would, would come in with the idea of the separation of church and state. That's the thing that they want to throw around all the time. But the truth is, that concept has a long history, which doesn't really mean exactly what people want it to mean when they're, when they're citing it and wanting to use it. These days, when people talk about the separation of church and state, what they really mean is your opinions are invalid because you are religious. You go to church, your opinions don't matter. And look, clearly, that is shockingly biased and bigoted on behalf of people who advocate that idea. Especially considering that the reason they don't like the church's ideas is most of the time because they think they're biased and bigoted, right? That's the thing that they're not liking and that's the thing that they're guilty of doing themselves. Either we live in a free society where every every opinion is worth hearing and discussing, or we don't. And the truth be told, we are going towards a society more and more where people don't believe this anymore. That there are certain opinions that aren't allowed to be said. Universities, the place that should have the free expression of ideas, uh, have got this no-platforming thing now where s- someone goes and if the, uh, the, the students don't like it, then they, they get up in the middle and they walk out. In other words, people aren't interested in talking about ideas because certain ideas are threatening or scary. The interesting thing is that the very side who has fought so hard for freedom of speech and freedom of expression is now the side that is wanting to reject it is now the side that is saying that they don't want it. But this shouldn't be, this is inconsistent obviously, but over the past two weeks we've talked a lot about the inconsistency. Uh, it shouldn't be surprising. And anyway, this idea that religion should stay out of politics is a misnomer. A misnomer, when I say misnomer, I mean it's, it's a wrong word, it's the wrong name to use, because politics these days virtually is a religion. Secular humanism, which is what we would generally call atheist or agnostic culture, is as religious as any organised religion. Politics has usurped and taken over the place of religion. 
where cultures may have previously looked to the church to look after the poor or needy, to educate the young, to be uh, philanthropically uh, supportive of people, these are now all the domain of the government. As an example, I'm a teacher here at the school, I was working with another teacher who uh, we were looking at the Australian National Curriculum for PE. Now you might think PE is interested in PE, you might think PE is interested in sport, um, but the majority of the criteria that needed to be assessed were got nothing to do with knowledge or skills in sport. Here is directly from the website. It's a good read if you want to go to the ACARA website. Have a listen to this. By the end of year 10, students critically analyse contextual factors. Sorry, this is the way that teachers talk. It's ridiculous. <laughs> they shouldn't talk like this, but they do. By the end of year 10, students critically analyse contextual factors that influence identities, relationships, decisions and behaviours. That's a criteria for PE, nothing to do with sport in there at all. Second, they analyse the impact attitudes and beliefs about diversity have on community connection and well-being. Again, nothing to do with sport. They evaluate the outcomes of emotional responses to different situations. These are the top three criteria for Year 10 PE. This isn't religion or ethics, it's PE. Now clearly this is values education, the government teaching students what should be valued in our society. And whether it's right or wrong, I'm not actually entering into it at the moment. I just want to point out that these people who are a-religious, who say that they are not religious, are just as religious as anybody else. It's just that now we've got the government doing the job that the churches used to do. We all are religious. So this argument, keep your rosaries off my ovaries, is about, holds about the same way it is get your ideology out of the clergy. Right? Because we can't forget that they are coming for religious freedom. This year will be a big year for religious freedom. If you don't know what is going on with regards to religious freedom in schools and institutions, I, I implore you to know more about what's happening in the political sphere in Australia. We need to be involved because we haven't been very up until this point. One way of getting in, in, uh, involved would be if you were familiar with, hopefully you are familiar with, the ACL. The Australian Christian Lobby works to represent Christian ideas and ideals in politics. Now, it's a good organisation and it's worth supporting. That doesn't mean that everything that they say is going to be something that you personally agree with. I don't personally agree with everything that they stand for. In fact, if you're looking for someone that you absolutely 100% agree with on everything, look in the mirror, that is the only person you will ever find, right? That's just the way that it goes. But regardless of what you do or don't agree with, the ACL is worth supporting because they are out there fighting against really, um, it's a hostile environment for these people and they're putting themselves out there in a big way. I know personally a couple of them, uh, so you know, Jim Wallace, Lyle Shelton, now Martin Ileson, Wendy Francis, these are good people who are doing a job I wouldn't want to do and they need our support. If nothing else, they need us not to ridicule them and make fun of them and say that they're not doing a good job in the public sphere. We, we should at least not rip them to shreds because at the end of the day, they're doing something that probably in a little bit, all of us should be doing more in that sphere. But whether or not you're fully on board with get, getting engaged to that extent, we are all here engaged in another more kind of foundational, fundamental way, and that is through voting, obviously. We live in a democracy of sorts. Um, people throw around this word democracy, it means a bunch of different things. You know, we have a, um, we have a liberal democracy and it's representative, 
So it's not like a true democracy where every single person gets a direct say in stuff. We have these, we give our rule over to a person who's meant to represent us. I say supposed to, meant to represent us, because obviously a lot of the time they don't. It doesn't happen very much. The party system in Australia, if you are aware of what's going on, is just becoming weirder and more toxic and more problematic all of the time. And this actually stops real representation from happening a lot of the time. For example, our own local member, John McVeigh, despite Groom being one of the few electorates in Australia that voted no on the same-sex marriage plebiscite, voted yes. So he did not represent his electorate. Now, he, he's got his own reasons for doing that, but in a representative democracy, one would think that being represented would be something that actually happens. Obviously, representation only goes so far because there are larger concerns for a lot of politicians, such as staying in government, staying elected. That kind of takes a precedent. And perhaps this is why there's really, uh, this year, the last couple of months, a flurry of people leaving parties and becoming independents because they truly want to represent the people, which I, I think... Good luck to them. Being an independent is harder than being in a, a party to getting anything done, but at least they're trying to really represent the electorate that they're from. So all of this aside, because politics is not really something that I enjoy talking about, let's talk about the theory behind it. Let's talk about democracy. Winston Churchill famously said, quoting an unknown source, that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. And that's a pretty good way of putting it, Right? I know it seems almost blasphemous these days to consider that there might be problems with free speech and democracy, but it's been known for a long time. Probably the first and the earliest critic of democracy was Plato, who wrote about it in his Republic in 400 BC. Plato spelled out um, five different forms of governance. It's up there, I'm not going to go through it all, but he said he's got aristocracy, democracy, oligarchy, democracy and tyranny. And he kind of plotted out the devolution, de okay? So the de-evolution um, from one to the next. And you can see that democracy is towards the tyranny end of things, not necessarily up the happy end of things. Now, while Plato is not meaning democracy in the same way that we mean democracy today, this shows that democracy highlights and focuses upon the individual, individual rights, individual freedoms, individual desires. And it gives the individual not only the ability to, but the undying belief in their right to choose the best way to live for themselves. The problem here is that it is so focused on the individual. Compare it to Plato's ideal, which he called the aristocracy. The leader's purpose was always striving for the common good, the good for the entire people, not for themselves. In fact, he advocated that they shouldn't be allowed to marry or have children or own property to ensure that they were as uncorruptible as possible. Democracy, as much as we may wish it otherwise, is not geared towards the common good for the entire polis, the entire people. We may trick ourselves into thinking that that's what a good democracy does, but the problem here is not our understanding of democracy. Uh, the problem is our understanding of the common good, of the word good. And this is why education matters so much. Think about it. When the future of the nation is in the hands of the common person, the common person must be well educated to be able to see through the rhetoric of the sophists who would convince them of their particular persuasions in order that they may be able to see the truth. In other words, we just get mob rule. That's where we end up with democracy. When the common person is less interested in truth than they are in what is uh, good for them, and by that, I mean what feels good for them, 
rather than what is truly good, then the common person will vote for those people who are promising the most amount of good feelings for them as individuals. Now, no one does this knowingly. Everyone, when they vote, if they're taking it seriously, and maybe the problem is that not enough people do take it seriously, but everyone, if they're taking it seriously, votes from a place of conviction. They vote saying that they think that this is the best and society would be the best if it was like this. The problem is not their conviction. The problem is not whether or not they have conviction. The problem is whether the conviction has been shaped by truth and goodness and beauty or if it has simply been shaped by their personal desires. Has it been shaped by the head and the heart or just the belly? And again, this leads to another point. For those people who believe that there is no objective truth and beauty and goodness, you might remember that annoying philosophical term I threw around last week, nominalism. Those people who believe that we're just animals at the top of the evolutionary ladder and our appetites and feelings really are all that we are, of course they're going to vote with their desires. There's no objective truth to discover, no objective common good to aspire towards, and no reason to sacrifice my own immediate desires for something greater, because there is nothing greater than my own immediate desires. Remember before I said secular humanism was just as religious as religion? This is exactly what I mean, right? There is still a dogma that underrides humanist and atheist sentiment. It's no less religious, it's no less factual, it's no less logical. In fact, in many ways, sorry, it's no more factual or logical, in many ways it's less, because at its depth, it's based around human desires, not objective realities out in the universe, only subjective feelings internal to us, feelings that are changeable, random, illogical, and susceptible to manipulation. So all this is tied back into education, because of course, this secular humanist approach of highlighting desires is exactly what young people are being taught in schools today. But not only in schools, it's what's peddled in the news, it's what fills the internet. Our world is exactly what we should expect. It looks and feels and operates exactly how we would assume, based upon the education that takes place in every day, in every way, and has been taking place for around the last century. So democracy requires wisdom. It requires those people voting to be wise or to be able to think and to think for themselves. If you want to think more about this concept, there's a great book by Oz Guinness called uh, Last Call for Liberty and he's given heaps of talks about it online uh, that you can watch. Democracy, because it exalts in human freedom and because humans are fallen, selfish creatures, is doomed to fail unless those individuals within it become more interested in the common good than in their own immediate conception of what's good. There's another great book about this uh, by James Cobb called The Tyranny of Liberalism. You can see the subtitle there, maybe. I'll read it out. It says, Understanding and Overcoming Administered Freedom, Inquisitorial Tolerance, and Equality by Command. The author says in the book, In the name of giving us what we want, liberalism denies us everything worth having. Our obsession with freedom has come full circle, so that now our freedom is eating itself, like the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail. One person's freedom always destroys another person's freedom. A quick example of this is the transgender movement, okay? Transgender boys, that's boys who want to be girls, being allowed to compete in girls' athletics carnivals. Now, feminists who have been around long enough are outraged 
and rightly so, because now men are muscling in, on literally muscling in, on the hard-fought territory that they have been campaigning to try to get. This is a new freedom eroding an old freedom. And the stories about how this goes are insane. There was an article that was on Crisis Magazine online recently. I'm just going to tell you the brief outline, see if you can follow it. It's difficult. Okay? A lesbian feminist was kicked off the Baltimore LGBTQ Commission because she referred to a male rapist as a male because he says he's female. This male rapist who is identified as a female was put into a female prison because he said he was a woman. And in that prison, surprise, surprise, he's raping people. Now, Julia Beck is a feminist lesbian, not someone traditionally who would be on the Christian side of politics, but she was kicked off. She was kicked away from the LGBTQ commission because she said that a man was a man. I know it's confusing. And the article has heaps more examples. But you can see this new freedom is eroding old freedom. If ultimately freedom is the greatest goal, it will always end in chaos because everybody's freedoms go up against everybody else's. So the political system is what it is. It requires wisdom and education. And while I, I mean school, I don't only mean school because we are all always being educated all of the time. The internet is pernicious in its educative capacity. We, as adults, should not think that we are above being impacted and shaped by the culture that we engage in, and that's why we should always be thoughtful and careful in what it is that we watch and listen to. You might not think it impacts you, but everything is shaping you all of the time. So the second point is about being a winsome communicator. Now, much of this goes without saying, but it's worth saying anyway. I've said before, and I know Sondi said before, Calling someone a murderer is not the best way to approach the issue of abortion. Even if it's true. And to be honest, I think that that's a contentious assertion to be making in the first place. But even if it's true, it's not helpful. The best approach is to speak the truth in love. But you know, speaking the truth in love, when it's talked about in the Bible there, it's talking about people within the church. To our brothers and sisters in Christ, speak the truth in love. The fact is that sometimes the truth, even with love, is just not quite what a person is ready to hear. Now, I'm not advocating lying to them. That's never going to bring life. That is never going to be the right approach, is lying. What I am suggesting is that rather than making statements, asking questions is a far better approach. When a person is in the midst of pain and struggle, being concerned with them as a person, as an individual while still not advocating necessarily decisions as being good, is a far better approach than going in guns blazing, ready to win the argument. You might win the argument, but you will lose the person, and it's not worth it. Questions are our most powerful weapon, and this is an approach modelled by Jesus. He did some of his best work by asking questions instead of making statements. Questions do two things. First of all, when they're asked authentically, they show that you care, that you're interested in someone's story, that you want to know them and you care about them and not just the issue. And this is really important. We should care about them. We are called, commanded even, to care about people. The issue is less important than the person at the heart of it. 
But this doesn't mean lying to them. It doesn't mean joining in their deception. It is the truth and only the truth that will set a person free. But the truth can hurt. It's possible that some of the stuff I say today might hurt. And if someone doesn't know that you really care about them, when you give them the truth, it might hurt them. And if you don't know them very well, it will possibly look like you're trying to hurt them. We've got to get alongside people. This is why the work of Rahab ministry in Toowoomba is so brilliant. These are people that go in and get alongside the prostitutes. Right? They, they're not going in there saying, you're all going to hell. They come alongside them. They love them. And they help them out if they want to get out. And a lot of them do. And all they needed was someone to do that. Not to tell them that they were wrong. But to help them by showing them a better way. The second reason that questions rock is because they can reveal bad thinking. Socrates, the ancient philosopher who I'm sure many of you have heard his name before, he didn't actually say very much. What he did do and what he was really good at doing was going around asking annoying questions. He asked questions purposefully to try to demonstrate to people that they didn't know what they were talking about. Good questions, asked well, have the power to make people stop and reconsider things that they've always just assumed to be true. We're going to move on to the final part of being winsome. This is the part that I, I hope I can communicate well. This is, I think, the most compelling way to be winsome in conversation with people. And it's the way that, when it's not done, uh, has done a lot of damage. And that's this. We can't be bigoted. It seems like a no-brainer, I know, but the church, when I say the church, and any time I say the church, I'm really just meaning Christians, wherever they are. The church, I think, is more bigoted than we want to believe. Quite possibly, I and you are more bigoted than you want to believe. And this flows on from my last point, right? We've got to care about the person more than the issue. I care deeply about these issues. That's why I wanted to talk about them. But this isn't the way that I would talk to an individual struggling through the moment. But it's more than just that. It's more than just the way that you talk. And this is where it will get a bit personal. I must ask myself, I believe all of you must ask yourselves, how much do I live in a world in which I am allowed to do the things that I want and I don't let other people do the same things? How much do you allow yourself to do things that you don't let other people do? In other words, are we hypocrites? That's actually where the word bigot comes from, and it's an old French word, meaning religious hypocrite. In asking this question, I want to just keep this at the forefront, right? Individualism is a lie. Your actions matter. They contribute to creating a world, a society, a culture. I'll give you an example, and I hope that God helps me to do it well. Same-sex marriage. I believe, and I've believed for a long time, I believed before it happened, before the bill went through, that we lost the argument a long time ago. We lost it a long time ago. Because one of the only good arguments we had was one re we really didn't actually believe. You would have heard this one. 
most of the time, if anyone did actually want to have a debate about this, and to be honest, they didn't really want to have the debate very often, but when they did and someone was there talking on behalf of marriage, we heard this, marriage is about children. The sanctity of marriage, it's about providing a mother and a father for children, and that same-sex marriage would erode that ability. But since when? Since when was marriage about children? The connection between marriage and children was severed a long time ago. There is no requirement for married people to have kids and no requirement to be married to have kids. And you might say that the church, and by the church I mean just Christians in general, generally disagree with this fact. And you know what, I think they probably do, but that doesn't mean that in practice we disagree with this fact. Purposefully, childless couples exist within churches and no one talks about them. I'm not talking about people who desperately want children and can't have them. That's a different thing. And I'm, I'm trying really hard to walk the line here. But you know, I'm really going out there here. We might even reconsider how many children we have. Now, obviously, there are reasons that not everyone can have a lot of kids or more than one or two or any and it's tragic when that's the case and they want them. But we live in a society where the number of kids that couples are having is constantly decreasing. And we might not realise that we have inherited a culture and ideology that was around 50, 60, 70 years ago. People like Margaret Sanger and Elizabeth Badinter that sold culture, the idea that having too many kids will destroy your ego. And the only reason to have kids is to fill your narcissistic tendencies in the first place. So have one or two, but don't do too many because it's just going to be annoying. Right? Now, I don't think many people actually would say they believe that because it's a brutal thing to say and like who actually, of these people did, saying I loved it, right? But generally speaking, people wouldn't do it. But that doesn't mean that deep, deep, deep down in an unconscious place that it might not have impacted the way that we think about family and having children. The commodification of children starts at that strange question that teenagers ask, how many kids are you going to have? We commodify them without realising it. So that's the question of having kids within marriage. But you know, the opposite is also true. Sex before marriage is obviously still frowned upon in churches. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. And it's, look, this is the messy reality of life. I'm not talking about the struggles that individual people have. I'm talking about the way that churches are seen to respond to them how we go about dealing with this stuff. And again, how we go about dealing with divorce. It doesn't mean that this is inexcusable, that there are no good reasons for this to happen. But no-fault divorce, like completely just two people amicably want to separate and go their own ways and stay within the church and the church has got nothing to say about that, that's a problem because that's demonstrating to society that what we say about marriage isn't even true in our own churches. Marriage breakdown is tragic. I'm not trying to say that it's not. This is why we need Jesus. But we need to acknowledge that we need Jesus. We need to acknowledge that this is not the design, that this is not the purpose, and this is not what we believe is good, so that we have something to say to culture who says differently. Our problem is that we have freedom. Our problem is our freedom. We have the freedom to use contraception the freedom to divorce and remarry, the freedom to use surrogacy. And while these things may not necessarily be wrong in and of themselves, there are always exceptions to rules, the question is whether or not we use these freedoms well. 
whether or not the use of these freedoms is good, good both for us as individuals and for society. I'm not saying that they're not. I'm just saying maybe this is something we haven't thought about enough. Now, there's a really powerful and brutally challenging passage in 1 Corinthians 8 about this. It's not directly about this, but I think it pertains really well. It's about being a stumbling block. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, their brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I know it's tough, and I'm a part of it, but I do believe that we, and when I say we, I'm talking about the church as a whole, I do believe that we could be in this situation. I do believe that at times the church has become a stumbling block to society by allowing certain practices to creep in, to become accepted, to become the norm, and then even to become exalted and celebrated. We actually end up playing that game, the same game that society plays, keep your rosaries off my ovaries. We play that internal to the church as well. We say, mind your own business, church. Don't tell me how to live. But there's no such thing as individualism, and our decisions impact our society. What the church has generally allowed marriage to become over the past 70 years has meant that now when we try to make a stand, we have no legs to stand on. We want to claim the sanctity of marriage. We want to claim that marriage is about children. We want to prevent surrogacy for homosexual couples. But these things are all okay for us because, because why? Is it because we say so? Is it because we're so much better than they are? Is it because our motivations are more pure? Is it because we're Christians? At the end of the day, our practices do actually end up suggesting that the big argument we have is we can do it, but you can't. And that is exactly what bigotry is. This, I think, is our Ouroboros. Our freedom has meant that we have devoured our own beliefs. Our personal practices have eaten our arguments. They've eaten our ability to have an argument that stands strong. We have lost some of our moral authority because we have lost some of the primary first things. Everything is connected. The more that you accept the world's ways with regards to sanctity of life issues, that is, the more that you individually accept human interventions that are designed to control nature and exalt in the human will and ability to choose, the less you have to stand upon when it comes to trying to discuss these issues with other people. This is why I went all the way back to nominalism last week. The denial of the transcendent, that's where it all started. And I'm really sorry to say this, but for anyone who knows their church history, they might know nominalism was a huge part of the Protestant Reformation. We're all Protestants. I'm a Protestant. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I wasn't, obviously. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some things we might be able to learn from the people on the other side of the Tiber, from the Catholics. And I know that's like virtually, you can't say that. 
But you know, Catholicism rejected nominalism. And in doing that, they were able to retain their understanding of the transcendent nature of reality and humanity. They were able to retain their idea of the sacraments, of the intermingling between physical and, and spiritual. And as a direct result of this, if you think of the one church whose teachings, not practices, but teachings, are best in line with sanctity of life issues, it's the Catholic Church. They have the most to say about it. They might not do it, but they got some great stuff to say about it. They've thought about it. They talk about it. Well, they probably don't talk about it enough, but they've got it there. I do believe they have other stuff wrong, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be here. But we are silly to just write off anything they might say about every issue simply because we're Protestant and they're Catholic. So what does all of this have to do with being winsome? I'm sure Sondi is wondering. Well, the person that you are, the way that you live, it gives your argument some kind of authority because you're living it. It means that you're not joining in with the confused world of inconsistency. And we all do it. None of us really live the way that we know that we should, not day in and day out. But there are major ways that the church has allowed its personal freedom, things that are allowed, to become things that are exalted. And these have, I believe, become stumbling blocks for others. If we don't want to be accused of being bigots, we should make sure that we aren't bigots. We should truly love people and enter into their stories by asking questions and caring about them more than the issue. We should speak the truth in love. We should practice what we preach. And when necessary, I believe we should live a life in which we give up some of our freedoms for the sake of others. Because that's actually at the heart of it. We might be free to do certain things, but we give up those freedoms for the sake of a better society. When you live your argument, in the least, people can't call you a hypocrite. But m bigger than that, people will see the truth of your argument lived in your body. And if you're living it well with God, hopefully they'll see the joy of the culture of life. Matthew 5, 14 to 16 says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are not just about what we do. What we do is never good enough as far as being able to sanctify us and make us holy. But sometimes we lean so far in the other direction that we forget about the fact that we are supposed to do good. We're supposed to do good deeds and that that is our light. Now the answer to these problems at the end of the day is not an argument. You don't only need an argument or logic to combat the culture of death. What beats death is life. In fact, for people who are sold out on modern secular humanism and the culture of death, logic won't cut it anyway because their desires are illogical and they don't care. Good logic might help because if they're honest thinkers, which is a big if, but if they're honest thinkers, they'll come to the realisation that their stance is at least inconsistent. But it's not enough because the logic doesn't address the real issue. The real issue is that society has been sold the lie that life is meaningless that it's, as Hamlet says, weary, stale, flat and unprofitable, that there is no story, that we're, we're born, we eat, we drink, we work, we pay taxes, we maybe have a couple kids if we want to, or maybe we don't, we have a couple dogs instead, 
We find meaning and pleasure as much as we can, but it never lasts and it's not good enough. We distract ourselves from this confusion by watching TV and getting drunk and playing Fortnite and watching the Patriots win the Super Bowl tomorrow and reading books, bad books or good books and getting engaged in politics or having a hobby, good things. But deep down, we don't think that any of it's really real. And we know deep down that none of it satisfies. This is the curse of nominalism. It's the curse of emptiness, the emptying out of the world. It's the curse of thinking that we are gods and that we make the rules. And the answer is not a technique or an argument. I can't give you a five-point thing on how to win this. It's not the way that it goes. The answer is seeing the world for what it truly is, which is magic. When we see humans for what they really are, magical, enchanted, valuable, made in the image of God and gifted with transcendent worth, the capacity to communicate, to create life, to bestow dignity, to protect and cultivate and bring others to flourish, that is when the culture of death will be seen for what it truly is. And people want this. They don't want my logic. They don't want to be shut down with knockout arguments. They want what we all want. They want meaning. You might remember this story from a couple of years ago. A baby's body was discovered on the beach. They couldn't find the parents. They didn't know where this baby came from. She was adopted by a couple. They made special provision for her to be legally adopted. She was given a name and she had a funeral service. There are 120 mourners at Lily Grace's funeral, which took place in a new part of Eastern Suburbs Memorial Park for children who have died without a family. And no aborted babies will be buried there. And who knows how many of those 120 people that attended that ceremony, or even the, the couple that adopted her in the first place, who knows how they would vote on the abortion issue? But what this story makes clear is that people want, deep down in their hearts, to believe that there is meaning, that there is value, that there is worth. And when we allow ourselves to be truly human, that meaning is obvious. It's only when our confused minds and our corrupted appetites get in the way that we start to doubt it. Engaging with these issues takes all of us, not just all of us, together but all of us as individuals our whole being not just our minds not just our compassion or our hearts or our bodies but all of it together we can know the history and the logic we can love the hurting and the confused and we can live the culture of life together to show people that there is meaning and that there is joy I'm move on to see if we have any questions. I meant to tell you at the start there's been this little number down the bottom of all of those pages, so I don't know if anyone's been texting any questions. I'm really okay if there's not any questions, but I, I know that these are big issues uh, that I have said some stuff over the past three weeks that maybe you've got questions about, and I'm really happy to um, talk about them. How do I find them? Are you going to help me out? Thanks, man. I know I had one particular question 
last week. So uh, this is it. It's great. The question is, do you think people can be too pro-life? And um, what they mean is doctors and families who are trying to treat people who are dying and just kind of prolonging the death process. That's a great question. And it really enters into the the difficulty of this. I think it kind of goes along in a different way with a question that someone asked me after the first one, uh, someone who heard it online and asked me, which was, uh, I talked a little bit about trying to save the mother's life if the pregnancy would end the life of both. And I would start off by saying that the problem is, as I said then, when you argue from exceptions and try to make them the norm, uh, that things become difficult. And because my answer to this might be different to the church's answer, I don't know, but I do think, I, I wouldn't cash it out as being too pro-life. It's not, you can't be too pro-life, life's great. But I do think that this can be, rather than th- this, this kind of idea of prolonging life, of maybe an old person or a terminally ill person being kept artificially alive for a long period of time, I don't think that's pro-life. I think that's a fear of death. I think they're two different things. And absolutely, we shouldn't fear death. We shouldn't fear death. Um, But I do know that this is where slippery slopes start. That me even saying that it's okay to maybe have a do not resuscitate thing or to not keep someone indefinitely or, or prolong life when really it means prolonging death is almost the beginning of the argument that says well how is that that different to euthanasia well i think it's very different because there's a difference between keeping someone alive and killing someone obviously a huge difference right there's a difference between withholding medication and giving medication really really different things so i I think of an example that someone told me after the first message where a woman had cancer and she was pregnant and she refused the medication for cancer because she knew it would kill the child. And that is quite literally a, a chance, a possibility that she would, she would pass away with the child as a result of that action. But she knew that the other action would result in the child dying. Now, she's 10 years free of cancer and the kid's alive, you know. So this is another thing. Is doctors don't always know exactly what's going to happen. We don't. But these are the fringe issues that are difficult and personal and need to be worked out with fear and trembling before God and with with, with wisdom that I would almost say they're over here and my problem is people want to drag them in and they want to say this is the issue and we need to legislate for this and the legislation we're going to have is going to open it up for everybody. They're just different things and people love doing it because at the end of the day it means they can do the thing that they want to do. They pull on emotional, real situations which are rare and they turn them into the norm so that they can use them. Yeah, the, um, the thing I'd throw in is, um, as I've been thinking over these issues, you go right back to the garden and, uh, and you see right there where God says, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they go and eat from that. And that's why this is so sticky. Mm. Because humans, we were never meant to grapple with these issues of trying to understand when we should take a life or when we should give a life or when we should prolong a life. 
this is why it's so sticky and, and difficult and arduous. It is painful um, to come to this point. Um, but then later on, uh, Ecclesiastes speaks very clearly and mm. sort of handing down wisdom that there's a time for everything. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. The trouble we have, the trouble I have, is that I don't know that. No doctor, no human doctor can honestly tell you when a person's time to live or when a person's time to die is. Because they can't, they, they don't know it. Only one knows that. And that becomes where it turns into more than just me making a decision about a family member or us making a family about a decision member, uh, a family member, to we can either hope and trust in a God who knows this and has got it. He, he can handle this. He has from the beginning of time and will all the way through to the end of time. Um, and our hope is that he's a perfect and just God. He's not a ruthless God. Um, hmm. So that'll be what I'd throw in. Thanks, man. That's our, that's our only question, which is great. If you've got questions you want to talk to me about afterwards or talk to one of the elders about, then that's cool. I hope that what I've said today um, made sense. I know it can be a bit challenging, but my ultimate response to how we should deal with the problems in the world is the same response that Mother Teresa gave once, which was go home and love your family. Because so many of our problems are the result of a lack of love and actually a lack of familial love, a lack of um, people sacrificing for those closest to them. So yes, there are, uh, there's a lot that can be done, but if everyone in the world did that, we wouldn't have to have discussions like this. That's the truth of it. And so as much as we can, we, the church, should be the light. And our light is in the way that we live, and it should be a joy that is contagious. So that's my prayer for us. That yes, we would engage politically. I think that we should. Yes, we become informed. We become wise. We become capable at speaking about these things in a variety of different ways, but that we embody the culture of life, that we live it, that we love it, and that people ultimately aren't won by our arguments, they're won by God's life in us, which is what we are called to model. I'll just pray. Can you pray with me? God, thank you for life. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the culture of life that you have created as a part of reality. And I pray that we would all contribute to and participate in that culture. That you would, over the course of this week, reveal to us ways that we have been brought in, that we have brought into the culture of death. Things that we have allowed in our lives which do not speak and reveal your majestic plan for life, but that rather exalt our own human will and ability to choose. And uh, as difficult as that is, pray that you would give us open hearts to think about it, uh, to really consider the way that you have stitched together reality and nature and help us to, in our own ways, grapple with that and contribute together to the culture of life. Amen. Okay, free to go. Thanks very much. <laughs>